We are actually not going to be in Acts 26 this morning. Uh, the reason why is because um, there have been some events that have taken place recently in recent months, and more than recent months. It's been ongoing. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But <clears throat> last week I'd mentioned about some what could be described as famous church leaders who have recently turned their backs on the faith, turned their backs on Christianity, and have identified themselves as not being Christians. And those type of statements are always kind of troubling, especially when they're people that you look up to, uh, that you respect highly. Uh, it becomes very troubling and, and disconcerting, doesn't it? Uh, and it, it almost at times disorienting. And for several weeks now, I've wanted to speak directly into that. I know I mentioned it briefly last week, but I think it's important to pause a little bit more than just a brief statement and spend some time talking about that. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning. Uh, and we're going to be in, just so you're aware, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 28 this morning because I think Isaiah has something pretty interesting to say about that. With that in mind, though, let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to spend our time looking at this. So let's pray. Lord, help us as this morning as we, as we consider uh, the text in Isaiah that we, will be, um, that we will be careful not to take the, the text out of its context or out of the import of what you're trying to communicate here, but that we will be faithful to your desires and commitments for this text. And at the same time, help us to be able to see that in light of our world today. And I pray that you will give us much wisdom and insight and uh, help us to understand. So glorify yourself in our study. In your name I pray. Amen. Let me say firstly that this should not surprise us. We talked about these people falling away. This should not surprise you and I. It really shouldn't. Although, as we said in the beginning, it is somewhat disconcerting and troublesome and creates questions in our mind what's going on. But at the same time, it shouldn't be troubling, right? I mean, think about it. Before I go to Isaiah 28, one of the first thoughts whenever we hear about these, if I may use the term again, famous people, famous Christians that seemingly are falling away from the faith, it should not cause us to be shocked or troubled at some level because what did Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Remember what he said? He said, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, Timothy, basically, he said, you need to understand something. In the latter days, what? Difficult times are going to come. And then he goes on for nine verses and talks about those difficult times, does he not? He describes them with this laundry list of things that will show up in the church. And it's important that we understand that Paul's Statement in 2 Timothy 3 to Timothy is about the condition of the church in the last days. Does that mean that this is the last days and Christ could return any time? The last days was even in Paul's mindset of those days. He's telling Timothy to watch out for this, which means that Timothy should expect it, right? Therefore, it means that even Timothy's days were considered the last days. Why do I say that? Because did Christ accomplish what he set to accomplish? So that the only thing that's left is for the church to be established in Christ to return, right? So it could have, Christ could have returned then. Could he have not? Of course he could have. And certainly for Timothy, it was that way. The church, we know from reading, how many of the, church, the churches that Paul wrote to were in great shape? Like none of them. How about the churches in Revelation 2 and 3? How many were in pretty good shape? Only one. And it had its problems, but it 
well, you could say the Church of Philadelphia was doing pretty well. And that's not Pennsylvania, by the way. Just a point of clarification. Yeah, of course. But, but the idea is that the, even in Paul's day and John's day, Timothy's day, Peter's day, Jude's day, it was not pretty. Rusty, you preached on Jude a couple years ago. And you know, it's pretty ugly, isn't it? It's very ugly. You read 3 John and, and the church is coming apart at the seams, isn't it, Ken? I mean, coming apart at the seams. One of the few people who are standing strong in, second, in 3 John is Diotrephes. I'm sorry, Demetrius. Not Diotrephes. Demetrius is, is, is one of the few standing strong and the church, generally speaking, is coming apart at the seams. And that's what you see throughout the Scripture. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. And then when we work our way through 2 Timothy, we find, we've talked about this before, but we find Paul telling Timothy, but you, however, after he turns and talks about the church, he turns to Timothy and becomes very singular and says, but you, Timothy, however, you stay strong. Sounds like he's going to be alone, doesn't it? You, Timothy, stay strong. Cling to what you've become convinced of and what you've learned from the Holy Scriptures. And then we come to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, and Paul says to Timothy, he says, because there's going to come a time in the church when people are going to gather together what? Teachers who do what? Tickle itching ears. In other words, the idea that Paul is trying to present is there's going to come a point in time when, when people are going to gather together pastors who are going to tell them what they want to hear. Well, you know what happens with people who are teaching what you want to hear? They don't last long. But the implication in Timothy's text, in Paul's text to Timothy, is that they're going to draw crowds. The people, generally speaking, are going to gather together for themselves people who tickle their itching ears. They're not going to be a sound doctrine. We should expect that. And that's what 2 Timothy chapter 4 is talking about. We should expect that. At the same time, it's disconcerting. And sometimes it's not famous people. It's just somebody we know. It's someone we're friends with. Sometimes it's loved ones. Brothers, sisters, moms, dads. Daughters, sons. Grandkids. It happens, doesn't it? It really does. They seem to love Jesus, and then next thing you know, they don't love Jesus anymore. John Piper is going through that with his son, Abraham, right now. And Abraham is posting all over the internet and has huge following as he's mocking the things his dad believes. It's sad. It's horrifying. Horrifying. But at the same time that we shouldn't be troubled, we shouldn't be shocked by it because Paul warned us. God warned us. At the same time, it does cause us to be in a position like, what do we do with this? Right? How do we respond to this? And I think oftentimes the responses are not good. Because oftentimes the responses either don't go far enough or they're just way out of balance. And so I want to try to help us to think about it from a biblical, Christ-centered perspective. Because that's the only way we can approach these things. So in Isaiah chapter 28, by way of background, Isaiah is, as you know from Isaiah chapter 6, is called, called by God, right? To do something. 
to be a, a messenger for God, a prophet for God to the people. <clears throat> to God's chosen people, or to use a different term, His covenant people, right? And when you hear God's covenant people, His chosen people, you automatically think, well, then certainly they are. They're God's people. They must be saved. They must be good to go, right? But it turns out they're not. It's not that God's plan is thwarted because we find out in the New Testament not all Israel is Israel, but God has kept a faithful remnant. That is His redeemed ones. But He had a covenant with the rest of them. But that covenant was not accompanied. This Old Testament tells us by the Spirit at work. And the New Testament tells us the exact same thing. Well, we come to Isaiah, and Isaiah is, is told by God, you are to go to the people of Israel, and you are to proclaim repentance. You are to call the people to repentance. And just so you're aware, Isaiah, you're going to do this for 40 years, and no one's going to repent, and they're going to be destroyed. That is, the ten northern tribes. No one's going to repent, and they're going to be destroyed. Now, Isaiah's ministry is focused both on Isaiah, I'm sorry, focused both on Israel, the ten northern tribes, because the country of Israel has been split now. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. His, one of his major focuses is on, is on the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, but it's also speaking to the tribes of Judah, the two tribes of the country of Judah now. So two countries out of one. In our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 28, he's speaking to both the two northern tribes, or sorry, the ten northern tribes that are known as the nation of Israel at this point, and the two southern tribes that are known as the nation of Judah. He'll start out referencing the northern, then he's going to go to the southern, and we're going to work our way back and forth through it. It's a poem. We're going to try to work with the poem, with the poem without, without killing the poem, if that makes sense. Um, you'll, you'll notice in your if you have a non-inspired heading in your text before you, you'll, you'll probably, it probably says something along the lines of judgment on Ephraim and Jerusalem. Or something along those lines. The reason why those are both identified is Ephraim, which we would, to help you think about Ephraim, obviously Ephraim is one of the 12 um, uh, tribes, but Ephraim, if you could think about where it's located, it's in the area that you've heard as Samaria. Samaria was north of Jerusalem and it was part of the ten northern kingdoms, the northern tribes. That's called the kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem is in Judah, so it's part of the southern kingdom of, of Judah. So you, here in the text, Ephraim is referring to Ephraim proper, but it's referring to Ephraim proper, that is the Samaria area, as a representative of the entirety of the northern kingdom. And the reason why Isaiah most likely chooses Ephraim to represent the entirety of the ten northern, northern tribes is because out of all the land mass of each of the tribes that make up the nation of Israel now, or at that point in time, Ephraim was the most beautiful, it was the most prosperous, it was the most fertile of lands. Even in comparison to the southern two tribe areas, Ephraim was like, like the trophy of the entirety of the promised land. 
There are other beautiful areas and fruitful areas, but nothing like Ephraim. So Isaiah is going to address Ephraim, and then he's going to address, address Jerusalem, but referring to Judah. Ephraim referring to uh, Israel. So I want you to keep that straight in your head as we work our way through the text. But before we actually unpack the text, let's read this part of the poem. It continues past where we're going to read, but let's read um, the poem. Starting in verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those who overcome with of those overcome with wine behold the lord has one who is strong who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail a destroying tempest like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he casts down to the earth with his hand the proud crown of the drunkards of ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people and a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will He teach knowledge? And to whom will He explain the message? Those are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept. Pre precept upon pe precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom He has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. This is a horrifying text. It is a text dripping with judgment. It is absolutely horrifying. We're going to unpack it here, and then we're going to try to understand how this, what, what is the intent and the import of this text. Is this text merely judgment? I would submit to you it is not. Is it judgment? Absolutely. But is it merely judgment described? Judgment proclaimed? No. There's something much more important going on here. But let's start back in verse 1. Ephraim is being ad addressed. And Ephraim is not being addressed in any good way, is it? Reference, er, uh, representing the, the, 
kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes, God through Isaiah says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty. I'm just reading verse 1 again. Which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. It's an interesting description in this poetic section. In poetry, most things are, are figurative. And so we need to recognize that. So what does God say through through um, Isaiah here. Well, I would argue that there's nothing figurative about the drunkards of Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim was known as a major winery area. Uh, grapes were grown heavily there. Wine was made. One of the most that was probably where more wine in Israel at this point in time was coming from than anywhere else in the country, including Judah, was coming from Ephraim. And the people were having a big old time, weren't they? As a matter of fact, it was so bad, they were characterized as a bunch of drunkards. Not with derision. They weren't like drunkards. I'm I'm not talking about Isaiah or God, but by other people. They're not drunk because they're bums. It's very important we get this. Why Why would these people, you think, be drunkards? Because they're prosperous. Because... Their crops have been yielding dramatically. Overwhelmingly yielding with the best fruit possible. And so they're producing amazing wine taste-wise and amazing wine volume-wise. And what are they doing? They're celebrating. They're celebrating their success. What are they not celebrating? The God of their success. They're celebrating their success. They're celebrating their hard work. They're celebrating what they've accomplished. And they're having some mass countrywide celebration. We don't know exactly what the celebration was, but the implication of the text is that there is this mass celebration going on and the people are getting absolutely smashed. Interestingly enough, Isaiah describes the situation as the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. A couple of things that are very interesting. It's, a, a two, it's an interplay going on. If you pick a flower, what begins to happen immediately? It begins to die. Ephraim has just been described. The glory of Ephraim has been described as what? A fading flower. That is a picked flower. And why do I say picked? Versus its time has passed and it's just dying like a flower does when it's still connected to the roots. And the reason why that is is because at the end of verse 1 it says, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. So, get the picture. The reason why why Isaiah describes it as being on the head of the rich valley is because there's a celebration going on. When the celebration is going on, one of the things they would regularly do is they'd make wreaths. But not wreaths like you and I think about it. Like Christmas, people had wreaths, right? And where was the wreath typically? On a door, right? You'd hang it on the door, or maybe you'd hang one on the wall, something like that. The wreath that is referenced in the Old Testament is not a wreath that would hang on a wall or a door. 
A wreath in the Old Testament is something that you would put on your head. And you'd wear it. It would be worn like a hat or a crown. It would be worn like a crown. And it would be worn to show your preeminence and your... What word do you think? Your glory. In this case, he takes that picture of wearing the crown of flowers and he applies it not to the people, although I'm sure the people were walking around with these flowers that were weaved into wreaths on their heads, but he puts it, the, the visual picture, everybody's walking around with fading flowers. By definition, they're going to fade, are they not? And he takes it away from each person's personal wreath, each drunkard's personal wreath, and he says, no, that is merely a picture of the fading flower that is on the head of Ephraim, of the valley of Ephraim. And the valley is referring to all that rich farmland and, and vi- all those rich vineyards. So the, the fading flower is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. And if, the, if, the, if, the, if God is describing the wreath representing the nation of Israel as faded and fading, what does that mean? It's dying. The glory of that nation, of that valley, representing the entirety of the nation, the glory of that nation is quickly fading and dying. That's the opening uh, salvo of this declaration by Isaiah in this poem. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, He casts down to the earth with His hand. It's an interesting statement. You hear What you hear here is God talking about someone. He's talking about a person. Someone. His someone. God's someone. Who is going to do something. And the description He gives is this one is going to send a storm. You know what it says? This one is going to send a storm. And it's described very clearly here. This storm, well first of all, this one is mighty and strong. Like a storm of hail, what does hail do to a farmland? It destroys it, doesn't it? And even more so if it's wine. If it's, I'm sorry, if it's grapes. It will absolutely decimate it, won't it? Like a, uh, uh, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, what escapes water? Nothing. Nothing escapes water. Ultimately, water always wins, doesn't it? Always. So he describes this one who is going to cast all this down to the earth with his hand. Now, a lot of people take in verse 2 to refer to Assyria. And certainly in 722 BC, that's exactly what happened to the ten northern tribes. In 722 BC, God rose up Assyria, who was 
probably to this day the most wicked nation that ever lived. And God used Assyria to absolutely decimate and wipe out like a flood, like hail, like a tempest, to absolutely wipe out the ten northern tribes. There's no question they did that. But I want you to notice something. I reject the statement that that is referring to Assyria. I think Assyria was definitely the tool. There's no question that's the case. But I want you to notice something in verse 2. Behold, the Lord has how many? One. It's singular. One. He has one who is mighty and strong. Singular again. Who is mighty and strong. Not are. Is mighty and strong. You'll notice that one who is mighty and strong casts down to the earth with his hand. What does he cast down? The storm. Does that make sense? Which is another way of saying the judgment. You follow me so far? What is the thing he cast down to the earth? It is Assyria. Historically, it was Assyria, 722 BC. No question. But the one being referenced at the beginning of verse 2 is not Assyria. Assyria is merely the, the, the storm. So who is the one? The one is described as a judge. Isn't that the description here? It's one who is a judge. He's judging the people, is he not? Well, who's the judge? Christ is. In the, in the Scriptures, Christ is the judge. The Father here, through Isaiah, is referencing Christ is going to judge them. And He's going to use Ephraim to judge them. I'm sorry, He's going to use, use Assyria to judge Ephraim. And because nothing can stand against water, and more importantly, nothing can stand against Christ the judge who sends the water, who sends the tempest, who sends the hailstones and the hailstorm. Nothing will stand. Nothing will survive. And what Isaiah is saying in verse 1 and 2, they're drunk, they're fading, they're going to die, and they're going to die at the hand of God. Judgment is coming. It's crucial we get this. Foundational. Verse 3, the proud of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty Referencing back to verse 1, as well as the fields of uh, the fertile fields and the beauty and everything else. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, um, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. What's the picture? The picture that Isaiah is painting is that just as someone who is walking along a lane, just for sake of discussion, if July is the time when a fruit becomes ripe, in this case, figs become ripe, just to throw a, fig, a number out. If the figs become ripe, a month out that is, if figs become ripe in July and you love figs and you're walking along down the lane and it's June and there's a fig tree and there's one fig there that's ripe and all the rest of them are not, but there's one fig that's ripe and you love figs, what are you going to do? You're going to grab it without even thinking about it and you're going to revel in that one fruit, right? And, and, and you know as well as I do. Like For example, if you like peaches, 
that first ripe peach off the tree, it's better than any other, any other one, isn't it? Because you haven't had a, a ripe fruit because all off-season you've been eating what? You've been eating baseball bats. Right? Uh, baseballs, I mean. Right? That's all they are. Is like, they're like baseballs. They're hard. They're not flavorful. But then there's a peach on the tree and it's ripe. First peach. And you get the chance to pick that first ripe peach. And there's something amazing about that taste, isn't there? And as the juice just flows down your face, it's an amazing experience, isn't it? That's exactly what he's talking about here. He says, when Assyria comes, in effect, Ephraim, you know what you're going to be like? You're going to be like that first fig. The first ripe fig. And in a moment, what's going to happen? Assyria is going to grab that. And they're just going to devour you. And you'll be gone. That's the point. And by the way, historically, that's exactly what happened. All the ten northern tribes of Israel were taken captivity or killed and were hauled off into captivity and never seen or heard from again. Gone. Completely decimated. We come to verse 5 and everything changes. This is the judgment, verses 1-4, through four, the judgment on, on the ten northern tribes. Verse 5, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people, and a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Let me just say, on verse 5 and 6, I would argue verse 5 and 6 is just like verse 1-4 through four was a prophecy, 5 and 6 is also a prophecy. But unlike Verses 1 through 4, verse 5 and 6, it has a near and far component to it. And you're going to see that in just a second. There's a near imperfect fulfillment of it, and there is a far fulfillment of it as well. We're going to right now just talk about the near fulfillment of it. We'll look at the far fulfillment in a little bit. In that day, what day is he referring to? The day when the fig is picked. The one ripe fig, when it is picked, in that day. In the day that the flood comes, in the day that the hailstones come, the hailstorm comes, in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. It's an interesting statement that he makes here. There's a play on words here. First of all, we know what the Lord of hosts means, right? The Lord of armies. That is, a, is, is a, almost inevitably a statement of War and judgment, isn't it? There's a couple of ex exclusions to that. A couple of times he'll talk to the Lord of hosts and he's coming to fight for you. But most times when you see Lord of hosts, it's a judgment to the, to the recipients of the letter. And in this case, it is that. Partially. Because in verse 5 he says again, in that day the Lord of hosts, and he shifts it, He's the Lord of hosts. That is, he's going, using Assyria. Assyria is his army, and they're going to war against the ten northern tribes, right? But he says, in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. What do you think he's referring to, crown of glory? What? He's talking about the wreaths. He's making a contrast, an absolute contrast between the wreaths that are what? Fading flowers that are screaming out life or death. Which are they screaming out? Death! 
In this case, he says, in that day, what day? The day where the final culmination of the wreaths of fading flowers reach their ultimate death. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. And the implication of that, unlike the fading flower, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of everlasting glory. Does that make sense? Everlasting glory. Their crown, their wreath will vanish. His will not. They will not remain. He will what? Absolutely remain. That's the contrast. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and He continues on with the absolute contrast between fading flowers to now a diadem of beauty. When he says a diadem of beauty, you get the idea of there's jewels on this crown. And the jewels are doing what? They're glistening. They're reflecting all the light around them, right? And we're talking about the Lord. How much light is there? Infinite light. So the diadem is blinding. That's the picture. But what's really weird is what happens next. Again, verse 5, in that day, the day of Ephraim, the ten northern tribes' destruction, in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to who? The remnant of His people. Who is He referring to? Judah. The two southern tribes. Judah. He's referring to Judah. The remnant of His people. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. There it is, connecting the, the one who, in verse 2. He is what? He's sitting in judgment and the strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. What's he referring to? Well, when, in 722 BC, when, when uh, Assyria attacked Israel, the ten northern tribes, and plucked that ripe fruit. They just, it was like a bulldozer. They just went right through. I mean, they just went right through Ephraim. Right through the ten northern tribes like they weren't even there. They were absolutely decimated. And they went right into Judah. And when they drove right into Judah, they actually historically drove all the way up to the actual gates of Jerusalem. They actually surrounded Jerusalem. But they did not conquer Jerusalem. They did not. And they were actually driven away. That's as far as they got. And they were driven away. And so it says here in verse 6, and a spirit of justice to him who sits on judgment, referring to Jesus, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So he is, the idea is Jesus, in effect, is their what? Is their strength. Right? He is their strength. And so God's glory is going to shine. Because who is, G who is Judah in light of Assyria? Who's Judah? Judah's nothing. I mean, Assyria went through the ten northern tribes, which probably had at least ten times the amount of people, like they were nothing. And they came up to Jerusalem they couldn't conquer. Why? Because 
God gave them the strength to resist. And God fought for them. The Lord of hosts fought for them. What's interesting, however, is this statement in the end of verse 5, to remember His people. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, to the remnant of His people. So you say, wow, what a contrast between the ten and the two, right? Between Israel and Judah. What a contrast, right? Judah was His faithful ones. Judah was His, his remnant. Judah was not like Israel, right? Eh, wrong answer. Because verse 7, what does he say next? These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. What is he talking about? You know what he's talking about? They're celebrating right along with, with Israel. They're doing the same thing. There's no difference. They're also drunk. As a matter of fact, believe it or not, Judah's worse. In a real way, Judah is worse. Because something that is said in this section, 7 and 8, that's not said in 1 through 4, is staggering. Because in 7 and 8, it talks about the drunkenness and all the rest. But what does it say? The priests are staggering around drunk, right? The priests are staggering around drunk. But that's not bad enough. And they're swallowed by wine, which is a parallel idea. So they, stra they stagger around with strong drink and in the midst of their absolute drunkenness, they reel in vision. What does that mean? It means that they are speaking about visions they're seeing and claiming they're from God. And they're spewing out heresy. Interesting, isn't it? And they stumble in giving judgment. You know what that means? The priests were to judge. And guess what kind of judging they're doing? Horrifying judging. They're judging people harshly that don't need to be judged harshly. They're judging people gently that ought to be as harsh as possible. Their judgment is on, on a whim. Who they like, who they don't like. Who they agree with, who they don't agree with. And it's all based upon God's law or their visions, you think. Their visions. Judah's an absolute train wreck in every way. So why does God call them the remnant of His people? That's troubling, isn't it? Isn't it troubling? Should be. And confusing. Should be. That doesn't sound right, does it? Doesn't sound right at all. Here's Ephraim, representing all of the ten northern tribes, and they're a train wreck. Here's Judah. The southern tribe, southern nation, representing two, two tribes. They're a train wreck as well. On steroids. It's the same train wreck. See, like they're even further along, doesn't it? If I may just pause on this just for a second. 
I just want to say, or ask the question, does Israel de- deserve to be destroyed in light of the verses 1-4? through four? Does Israel deserve to be destroyed? Absolutely. 100%. But let me ask you, does Judah deserve to be destroyed? Yes, and equally so. Someone just asked me recently, why is it that all those people died out in the wilderness with the golden calf and Aaron didn't? I don't know if you ever asked yourself that question or not. Aaron's the one who led them. Why did, why did 30-some thousand people or whatever it was, 25,000 people get killed and Aaron didn't? And unlike the others, Aaron lied about it. He blamed the people, didn't he? And then he said, I just threw the gold in the fire and out came the golden calf. What? I mean, I'll bet Andrew didn't make that ludicrous of an argument when he was a kid. Reagan? (laughs) Maybe, okay. It's ludicrous. And yet Aaron survived. Aaron wasn't killed. If anyone should have been killed, it should have been Aaron, right? But he wasn't. What's that all about? Romans 9 says what? He will show mercy to what? To who? To whom he will show mercy. That's what it says. You know what we have in this picture and we have in in Aaron and the rest of the Israelites who were worshiping the golden calf, we have a picture that we're all deserving of what? Death. We are all fading what? Flowers. Aren't we? I don't care if you're Aaron-esque or if you're just the Hebrew people-esque. I don't care if you associate with Israel or you associate with Judah. Is there any difference? There really isn't. God shows mercy on who He shows mercy. And God being the Creator and the Sovereign One has every right to do that with His creation. It is absolutely essential that we get this. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And it's so bad in verse 8, it says, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit. You get the picture of a massive party, don't you? And, And people aren't just drunk, are they? They are, it's a great way to put it, they are throwing up drunk. And yet, you know what they're doing? They're drinking more and throwing up more. You get a picture here, a grotesque picture in verse 8. Notice it doesn't say there's vomit. What does it say about the vomit? The tables are what? Full. Not to belabor the point, but how bad are they? The vomit is literally running off the table. It can't all stay on the table. People are all around all the tables and hurling everywhere, and yet they're still drinking. (laughs) And they don't even realize, if we may say this, they don't even realize they're drinking ultimately judgment upon themselves. That's where we find ourselves. That's the storyline. Ephraim is worthy of judgment. Judah 
is worthy of judgment. Ephraim is going to be judged in just a little bit. Just a bit. Ephraim will be judged. Judah? Not at this point. Because the Lord of hosts is going to stand for them. Verse 9. Suddenly it shifts. Verses 1-4 through is this discussion of the condemnation on Ephraim. 5 and 6 is this near... We just saw the near prophecy of what's coming, right? That God's going to protect Judah. 7 and 8... We find out Judah's a mess. And then Isaiah moves from the two judgments and the prophecy in between, and he moves to presenting the arguments of the leaders. And it's really kind of generic. So I think it's applying to the leaders of both Judah and Israel. And so it's like as if, think about this next section as if they're talking, the leaders are talking. To whom will he, and the he is referring to Isaiah, to whom will he teach knowledge? They're being very derisive. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? And then it goes on and says, those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast, what the the people are implying about Isaiah is, he's talking to us like we are babies. He's talking to us like we are infants. And he thinks he's going to instruct us? That's the idea. And that's when he, the, these people are moving into this statement. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In other words, the idea is all he does is like he's going through, to use a secular term, he's just going through addition tables with us. He's just going through a little bit at a time. Just precept upon precept. He's just explaining, uh, 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 telling us the commandment and then explaining the commandment. Telling us the commandment, explaining the commandment. Going through the basics. Just the raw basics. And it's all he ever does. Precept upon precept. And line upon line. He's just belaboring the point. And Isaiah responds. And their, their idea of, of 9 and 10 is he's not teaching us anything, nor he can he teach us anything. And so Isaiah interacts with their accusation in 11 and following, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. What's he talking about there? What he's saying, starting in verse 11, is since you will not receive, and we know according to Isaiah chapter 6, God's hardening their hearts so they don't receive, right? So they can't receive. But since you don't receive, the message of Isaiah to repent, that what I'm going to do, verse 11, I'm going to have strange-lipped people, foreign-tongued people, are going to instruct you. Since you won't receive it in your own language from my prophet that I sent to you, I'm going to have a foreign lips or strange lips with a foreign tongue. They are going to be used by the Lord to speak. 
And their speaking to them will be what? It'll be nothing. It'll be useless. It'll be babble. In effect, what Isaiah is saying to them is, you don't want God's law. You don't want God's message. So God will oblige you. Do you realize that's what he's saying? You don't want it, so God will oblige you. He's going to send you to a people that don't speak your language, and they're going to instruct you, but their instruction are going to be what? What kind of instruction do you think theirs is going to be? Is it going to be God's, uh, God's law? It's going to be their law. It's going to be their idea. You want all the other gods? You want other instruction than God's instruction? Fine. I indulge you. You have it. It's a horrifying statement. Horrifying. In the midst of that, God says, verse 12, as He's speaking about this this people, to whom He has said, and this is an interesting and at first confusing statement, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. What is God referring to through Isaiah in verse 12? It's an interesting statement. He's not talking about the Assyrians. He's not talking about their capture and all the instruction they get. He's talking about something else when he says this is rest. What is rest that he's referring to? What is repose that he's referring to? What is for the weary that he's referring to? It's actually kind of simple. It is the precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little. There a little. What are all those things referring to? The law of God. Which should cause us to scratch our head. Because there's something we know about the law of God. The law of God in the Old Testament is not rest. And it is not for the weary. Because it will make you what? More weary. And you will not find rest in the law itself. Will you? Is there repose in the law for the Old Testament people? The answer is... No! So it begs the question, what in the world is Isaiah referring to when he calls it rest and repose and for the weary? What he's referring to is this. That precept upon precept, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the law primarily. He's talking about what the law points to. What he's talking about, more importantly, and absolutely essentially, is that the law's purpose, even Isaiah is mentioning this, the law's purpose is point to point to who does give rest for the weary. It's for those who hear the precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. And are undone by it. Who are destroyed by it. And they find themselves crying out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Because I realize in hearing the precepts and the lines, and here a little, there a little, I realize that God's standard is absolute perfection. And the only hope I have is that someone comes and lives an absolute, perfect adherence to the law. And that is the promised one. That is even referenced in this text as the judge. Because not only did they not find Jesus in the law, but they rejected the law that was supposed to be pointing them to And that's why it concludes in verse 12 by saying, yet they would not hear. Which should ring a bell to you. That statement, yet they would not hear, sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Can you think of any other place where that kind of thought shows up? Well, that's possible, yes. yeah, it's, it's connecting with that, yes. But more import, importantly, I'll give you a hint. Garden of Gethsemane. Overlook, and then he went up to the top of Mount of Olives and he looked over Jerusalem and he said what? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I tried to woo you like, like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would what? But you would not. That means you would not come. You would not hear. Same thing. Here we are. Except now Israel no longer exists. Now it's just who? Just Judah. And here we are, 722 years later or so. And what do we find? They're still not, are they? They're still not. They're still resistant. And so what does it say in verse 13? Again, the word of the Lord will be to them. And the them, I said, remember I said it's generic. It's referring primarily to the ten northern tribes, but it's also referring to the two southern tribes, Judah, and the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In other words, what does that mean? They're already rejecting it and God says that's what we're going to do. Why is that? Because God doesn't change. His plan is His plan, right? God does not change. And so it's still going to be precept, line, here a little, there a little. Except everything changes, doesn't it? Because at the end of verse 13, what do we find? That word that shows up. Or so that. Purpose statement. What's the purpose, therefore, if they're not going to turn and cry out for mercy upon learning about the precepts and the lines, the, the, the commands of God? If they're not going to turn and cry for mercy, then the purpose for the precepts and the lines, and here a little, there a little, is that they may go and fall backwards. You think about going and you think about falling which way? Forwards. But they're going and falling backwards because someone's acting upon them. It's a picture of judgment. They're going forwards, but they're going forwards all the wrong direction. Judgment upon them. They're, that they may go and fall backward, and in falling backward, they are what? Broken, snared, and taken. They're destroyed. It's a horrifying text, isn't it? But we have a 
near and far prophecy, do we not? Remember I said that in verse 5 and 6? Go back to 5 and 6. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people and a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Who is causing Judah in the near prophecy? Who is causing Judah to drive Assyria back from the gate? The Lord of hosts, right? The Lord of hosts is doing this, right? It's not them. It's the Lord of hosts. Who wears, who wears the crown of glory? Christ wears the crown of glory. Why? Because He is the Lord of hosts. He's the one who does these things. Does He not? For His remnant. The far prophecy, the near prophecy is what happened at 722 B.C. But we know the story of Judah. Because they didn't learn the lesson because the whole point of Ephraim was a lesson. They didn't learn it. So at 586 B.C., what happened was actually started in 605 B.C. and then they came back again in 586 and finished their work. The Babylonians came down and took Judah captive. Right? 70 years. And God released them and then they did great the rest of the time. They learned their lesson finally, didn't they? And then God was their glory, right? No. Quite to the contrary, they didn't repent. They didn't turn back to God. They did not remain with God. And so God did what? He went silent until the fullness of time when He sent His Son, right? And His Son came. And He filled the temple with His glory. Did He not? And they did what with Him? They rejected Him, didn't they? They also rejected Him. Ah, But, what happened then 40 some days later? He rose from the dead three days later and then 40 days later He ascended and then what happened right after that? He sent the Spirit with power and what happened? Pentecost and some believed, right? Some of those who cried out crucify Him believed and became what? Part of the remnant. Did they not? Ah, but what happened to the vast majority of of the people of Judah? 70 A.D. rolled around and Rome said that's enough. In 70 A.D. Judah was wiped off the map. And the people were hauled off into captivity. And the last, last section to fall was Masada. And they didn't exist again until obviously 1948, 1949 when they became a state again, which we're not talking about this morning. But Paul says God always kept a faithful remnant. Correct? And for the faithful remnant, they're faithful why? Because God is faithful. That's why. Not because I'm faithful. It's not because you're faithful. It's not because some other pastor's faithful. It is because He is faithful. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. When we stand before God, He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He's not talking about you. And he's not talking about me. He's talking about Christ who has given us His righteousness. If we have His righteousness, then we are judged at Christ's standard. And because Christ passes the test, 
we are blessed and His mercy flows. Amen? It's important we get this. Because we're talking about these people who are falling away. We said, 2 Timothy tells us it's going to happen. Right? But not just 2 Timothy tells us that. We know. It happened in the New Testament, didn't it? The churches were falling away. Demas fell away. Diotrephes fell away. Other people are recorded as falling away. The entire church in Asia fell away. Ephraim fell away. Judah fell away. My goodness. Cain fell away. It happened all the time. Can I just say this real quickly? It amazes me that everybody doesn't fall away. It amazes me that everybody doesn't. It amazes me that there's anybody who doesn't fall away and get hauled off to be taught by a foreign-tongued people. As we think about this, we, we'll, I'm convinced we're going to hear more and more of this. I'm absolutely convinced of this. And it's not going to be famous people. It's, gonna be, it's happening in churches everywhere. People are turning their back on the faith. It's everywhere. It's constant. And I think it's accelerating. I really do. I know of tons of people, tons of pastors and tons of people, just for example, Exhibit A, are getting sucked away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and into the whole critical race theory, just for example. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And they're not even arguing for the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. They're arguing for the critical race theory. It's like, how'd that get in the church? Precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. You're going to teach me that stuff again? Uh, come on, I'm past that. Really? You're past needing to hear from God? You're past needing to receive God's mercy? You're past all that? Really? It's amazing that anybody survives. And can I just remind you that Paul, I think it was Paul that said, may have been Peter, said, unless the days were shortened, it'd be as if the very elect could be deceived. Now, God won't allow that, right? Because he is the Lord of hosts. And he will always save his remnant. How do we think about this? Well, on the one hand, we should not be surprised. On the other hand, we should recognize that, you know what? As I stand before you today, I believe I'm saved. I believe the Spirit is at work in my life. But you know what? I'm a whole lot more like Judah than I am Jesus. Do you realize that? And so are you. And we will be. We will be. Until we are glorified. And God is faithful. If He has called us to Himself, He will 
preserve us until the day of Jesus Christ. He promises it. And it will not be because of how well I do. And it will not be because of how well you do. Because it is not up, as Paul says in, in, in Romans, I believe it's chapter 7, it's not up to the one who wills or works, but to the, up to the one who shows mercy. What I need and what you need more than anything else is God's mercy. <laughs> is to cry out for God to be merciful to me, a sinner. Because just as Josh Harris walked away from the faith and John Piper's uh, fellow pastor who was also a, one of his major writers that wrote a lot of his books for him, who just recently fell away, and many others that can be named, just as they have, so could we, apart from the mercy of God and the preserving work of the Spirit in our lives. See, if we've been sealed, I'm confident we will not. Now, he who per perseveres to the end will be saved, right? But who perseveres to the end? Those who the Spirit has actually put a seal on. If, if someone had the seal, they're not going to what? They're not going to fall away. They can't break that seal, can they? They cannot. But there's going to be a lot of people who are going to seemingly be what? Seal kind of people but they're not. Don't be surprised. How should we view when these people fall away? We should pray for them. We should grieve. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, I'm glad when they run their flag up the flagpole. Nothing I can stand more than, than, than hidden reefs in our love feasts. I'd much rather have the flag up on the flagpole that says they're of the, a different kingdom. Makes things a little bit easier, doesn't it? Makes it a lot easier. But on the other side of the coin, we should expect it, but it should cause us primarily to seek Christ and to pursue Him and to cry for mercy. I see too many Christians are talking about these people who are falling away and it's like, it almost sounds like, thank you Lord that I'm not as one of them, one of these. That's troubling because if you're thinking that way, you probably are. You realize that? Friends, we need God's mercy. We cannot save ourselves. We know that. We desperately need God to be merciful to us because we are Judah. Aren't we? We really are. And yet, it is so bizarre because He still loves us. And He's still merciful. And he, the Lord of hosts is standing there in full array, for what purpose? In His crowning glory, full of, of, of all the glory shining. He's there to defend His people. Amen? He really is. Out of all the Father gives Him, He loses none. We have much to rejoice over. We have a great one to worship. And if we are truly saved people, we will. Because that's what the Spirit does. That's what His grace does in our lives. But we must never forget who we are and how much we need Jesus and how much we need His gracious and merciful work in our lives.
Amen? Let's pray. Help us, Lord. We are so easily self-deceived. It's easy for us to look north across the border at Ephraim and say, what is wrong with these people? And not even recognize that we're really, really similar. Oh, maybe we don't declare it out loud, but we do live our lives oftentimes not recognizing, not remembering, not glorying in, not worshiping, but worshiping elsewhere and not even recognizing that we're attempting to put on a crown of fading glory and trying to steal your glory from you. Lord, I pray that you will work in our lives. Open our eyes to see your wondrous glory. Give us hearts that crave recognizing that and crave reveling in your glory and reveling in your grace and mercy to us. Protect us from error. Protect us from pride. Help us to see you. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?